Our text today is from Daniel chapter 7. God willing, we end our study of this chapter, this Lord's Day, Daniel 7, verses 26 through 28. But the judgment shall sit, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and to destroy it unto the end. And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Hitherto is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my cogitations much troubled me, and my countenance changed in me, but I kept the matter in my heart. When studying such prophetic passages as we've been doing from Daniel chapter 7, and particularly seeking to understand who in history has the characteristics listed concerning the little horn that becomes a great horn, let me suggest two extremes uh, that should be avoided by us. The first extreme that we must avoid is the extreme of indifference and apathy. That we give no attention or care to this important prophetic character that is mentioned here of the little horn that becomes a great horn in history. That we simply go about our life as if God has not given to us a very real warning that we are to take seriously from reading this passage. That would, in effect, view God and view what God has revealed here as basically wasted space in the inspired pages of Scripture if we do not take seriously what we read here. And that would be, I submit to you, a very tragic mistake for any Christian to take. Second extreme that we must avoid is the, is the extreme of preoccupation and obsession. That we give too much attention to this important prophetic character of the little horn that becomes a great horn in history. That we become basically consumed with anxiety. That we become consumed with fear and worry. That panic overwhelm us over this great character that is spoken here. That extreme basically would view us as powerless. If we obsess, if we fear, if we panic, it would view us as being absolutely powerless. And more importantly, it would view Jesus Christ as being powerless to protect us, to be with us, to sustain us and uphold us. So, dear ones, the balance, the biblical balance is to take Seriously, the warnings that we find in Daniel chapter 7 concerning this little horn that becomes a great horn, but that we not panic in fear. And most importantly, we must always keep an eye of faith. We've got two eyes, one of them an eye of faith and the other an eye of hope upon Jesus Christ as our conquering Savior and King. For through his death, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, and his enthronement at the right hand of God, all of his enemies shall be destroyed. 
and shall he shall bring all nations all nations all kings to bow before him dear ones and that's not only true with regard to this little horn that becomes a great horn in Daniel 7 I think we need to again even think more broadly in all of our trials, in all of our afflictions, in all of our suffering, we must ever keep the eye of faith and the eye of hope upon the Lord Jesus Christ rather than upon what we view as being the enemy, lest we be overwhelmed if we only keep our eye upon the enemy we will be overwhelmed. We must keep our eye of faith and hope upon Jesus the King. Yes, be aware of the enemy. Know the enemy. But again, that we not be overwhelmed, that we fall not into despair, that we lose our peace and our comfort because we know who's in control, we know who's reigning. And that's why the most important character of Daniel's vision is not the little horn that becomes a great horn. He's, he's not the most important character in Daniel's vision. The most important character in Daniel's vision is the king, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He's the most important character. Bring any enemy to the battlefield that you want to bring, no matter how great, even Satan himself with all his demonic forces. But give me the king, because all things have been submitted under his feet. He is ruler. He will win the battle. The main points today from our text are these. First of all, the kingdom of Antichrist will be destroyed by King Jesus. And in verses 26 through 28. And then we will take up a question and uh, seek to answer this question. Uh, when will the kingdom of Antichrist be destroyed? Is there a date? Is there some time period that we know that the kingdom of Antichrist will be destroyed. And we'll be going uh, to uh, the book of Revelation uh, to seek to answer that particular question in Revelation 17, uh, particularly verses 9 through 11. So the first main point, the kingdom of Antichrist will be destroyed by King Jesus as we have read uh, verses 26 through 28 already. Just by way of review, for the past two sermons, we have sought to identify in history, which is what we ought to do. We're not simply to look at uh, these symbolic figures and leave them as symbols. The Lord expects us to take the symbols and to seek to find the fulfillment of those symbols in history, and that's what we've sought to do. How do we do that? Well, we look at the characteristics that are mentioned with regard to this little horn that becomes a great horn. We look at what uh, the Lord gives by way of vision to Daniel and the interpretation by the angel uh, in Daniel 7 of this little horn that becomes a great horn. We look at those characteristics and we begin to say, well, who in history and at the time of history that is actually cited there fulfills this particular um, symbol. And uh, in seeking to do that, I, again, this is the historic uh, Protestant position. I'm not laying out something uh, novel or new. Uh, this is historically what Protestants have uh, viewed in regard uh, to the, uh, the uh, Antichrist, uh, most historic Protestants.
And we have come to, again, identify that those characteristics are indeed realized in the papal kingdom of Rome. We also noted in the previous sermon that the interpreting angel gives the length of time in which the great uh, horn, this little horn that becomes the great horn, or the papal kingdom of Rome, will, will oppress and uh, will wage war against the saints. How long is that period of time? In Daniel 7.25, a time, times, and a dividing of time. That is the time that is mentioned there. How long is that? Well, uh, a time is one year, times is two years, and the dividing of a time is one year. So it's one plus two plus one half, which is three and a half prophetic years. Or as, and this is again by way of review from the, the, the previous sermon, as we looked last Lord's Day at Revelation chapter 12, verses 6 and 14, we saw that that same period of time, a time, times, and a half a time, is used with regard to the period of time that the Lord protects his faithful church from the attacks of this beast, of this, of this beast that raises up a, a civil beast together with an ecclesiastical beast uh, that is raised up by Satan to persecute, to oppress the church of Jesus Christ. And it uh, mentions again the same period of time uh, in verse 14, but in verse 6, it uses that period of time. It, it uh, uses uh, 1,260 uh, days rather than a time, times, and half a time. And we considered that how are we to understand 1,260 days? Is that just talking about a literal three-and-a-half-year period? Is that what is actually spoken of here? Uh, or is it a much longer period of time? Well, we, again, uh, as by way of review, allowed uh, God's Word to interpret that for us rather than us putting our own interpretation upon that. And and in Daniel 9.24, we noted that the 70 weeks of Daniel there uh, are not uh, 490 days. Uh, they are 490 prophetic days, but they are not 490 actual days. They're actually 490 years from the time of Daniel to the coming of Christ. Because it's a prophecy of, of, of Messiah's coming. And uh, Messiah didn't come in, uh, from the time of the, that prophecy. Uh, Jesus didn't come in 490 literal days. Uh, that would be one and a third years um, from the time of Daniel's prophecy. That didn't happen, obviously. And so, again, there we see that a day equals a year. One prophetic day equals one actual year. 490 days equals 490 years. That's how long of a period of time is spoken of with regard to 70 weeks of Daniel. So in the book of Daniel, God gives to us even the interpretive key for how we're to understand, therefore, three and a half years or 1,260 days that those are 1,260 years in which this papal kingdom of Rome will oppress and, and will um, uh, destroy and will persecute uh, God's people. And uh, so that's the length of time, 1,260 years, and we're going to, and that's all by way of review, but we, were, uh, we will get to the second main point. When did that time begin? 
we, we know how long it's supposed to last, but when did it begin so that we have an idea when it's going to end, that, that period of time. But before we get to that question, as we look at uh, the last three verses in Daniel chapter 7, we're not left by the Lord uh, with the little horn that becomes a great horn ruling over and oppressing God's people. That's not where we're left. Where we're left uh, here by the interpreting angel uh, is the victory of Jesus Christ and his kingdom over the papal kingdom of Rome. King Jesus is the one who is victorious. In verses 26, Daniel 7, 26 through 27, but the judgment shall sit and they shall take away his dominion, that is the dominion of the little horn that becomes a great horn, to consume and to destroy it unto the end. That's talking about, again, the complete destruction, the end of the papal kingdom of Rome. And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve him and obey him. All the dominions on the earth, all the kings, all the rulers, uh, the church uh, of Jesus Christ will be one throughout the world. All will serve and obey him in that time that is spoken of here after the destruction of that papal kingdom of Rome. So this is where, dear ones, our primary focus should be. Uh, not upon the enemy, but rather upon the king who vanquishes and conquers all his and our enemies. As I said earlier in the sermon, there's really no hope, there's no help for us, dear ones, in being preoccupied with the enemy. Because we can't, the enemy, being preoccupied with the enemy is not going to bring strength, is not going to be, bring victory. Whether it's an enemy within, one of our sins, our besetting sins, whether it's an enemy without, focusing primarily or being preoccupied with the enemy is not the way to overcome the enemy. We have to look to the king. We have to look to Jesus Christ in order to overcome those sins within us, those trials in our lives that, that have us uh, weighed down so heavily, whether it be work, whether it be health, whether it be what we see happening in our country, Whatever it may be, when we only focus upon the problem and do not look to Jesus Christ, the King, we're going to be dismayed, discouraged. We're going to be cast into despair and hopelessness. There's no hope in simply focusing upon the enemy. We have to look to Jesus, our conquering King. And he has conquered by his death, by his resurrection and ascension and his enthronement at the right hand of God, he has overcome all his enemies. And he will display that in history as we see here foretold in this section of Daniel chapter 7. Though the death and resurrection of Christ has already sealed the doom of all the enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ, the actual judgment will fall upon this great horn yet in the future, and then Jesus will reign from heaven over all this world. All the dominions of this world will be transformed and changed will be, by the gospel of Jesus Christ, the hearts of leaders, talking about a time of reformation, talking about a time in which it is hard to even imagine because of what we see presently, you know, in 
the world, the degradation, uh, the depravity, the perverseness and the corruption that we see in this world and in the leadership. And yet, there is coming a time, according to the word of God, in which Jesus will subdue all of his enemies and the kings of this world and the nations will serve him, will flow into the church of Jesus Christ, will become Christian nations. Can you imagine these nations being Christian nations? Israel, a Christian nation. Iran, a Christian nation. China, a Christian nation. North Korea, a Christian nation. Serving, worshiping the feet of Jesus Christ. Jesus has said this will happen. He as king will bring it to pass. And that's where our hope is. And churches throughout the world covenanting together to confess Jesus, to confess the same doctrine and worship and government of the church. In Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, this is what is prophesied to occur. And it will come to pass. There it says, And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains. Let me pause. When it talks about mountains here, again, that's a symbol of kingdoms. And so the, the, the kingdom of the Lord's house, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, it says, shall be established in the top of the kingdoms. His kingdom will be the supreme kingdom throughout all the kingdoms of this world. And shall be exalted above the hills. And all nations shall flow unto it. All nations, not some, all nations shall flow into it. And many people shall go and say, come ye, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So all of the Lord's enemies and all of the weapons of war will be turned here, as it says by way of symbol, will be turned into farming equipment, uh, will be turned into ways to promote peace, not war any longer. And let me again reiterate what I've said before. We pray, indeed, according to a passage like this and other passages, we do pray for the destruction of that great horn, the papal kingdom of Rome, its hierarchy, its usurpation of Christ's leadership, its false gospel, its idolatry, in images and prayers to the saints, for its mass in which it says that the body and blood of Christ in um, the elements be actually become the literal body and blood of Christ, in the infallibility they claim of their oral tradition. We pray for the destruction of all of these things. But we pray at the same time for the salvation of all those who are held captive in Rome, whom we love, that they would come out of her, that they would be rescued and saved because the papal kingdom of Rome does not promote the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. It is bondage. It is servitude. And that's why in Revelation 18.4, the word is, come out of her. O my people, come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, that ye receive not of her plagues. Daniel 
relates here in verse 28 that all of this was of such great import to him that it greatly affected him. It greatly affected uh, his, his body, his countenance. All of it was so uh, striking, was so uh, significant to him in verse 28. He says, Hitherto is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my cogitations much troubled me, my thinking much troubled me, and my countenance changed in me, but I kept the matter in my heart. I submit to you, dear ones, that uh, when we read the prophecy that we have just looked at in Daniel 7, I ask, uh, does it affect us? Or do we just sit here? It affected Daniel. It had quite the impression that it made upon Daniel. Does it make an impression on us? Or do we just go about our business as if nothing of any importance or significance was stated or said to us? Dear ones, if we take the word of God seriously, it should have it should have an impact upon us. It should move us. It should affect us. And particularly, what should move us is that Jesus is king. What should, what should uh, truly be of the greatest significance, again, is not the enemy, but the king who overcomes all his enemies. Jesus is king. If you don't walk away from anything else in Daniel chapter 7, walk away from the study of Daniel 7 that Jesus is king. He is supreme king. He conquers all his and our enemies. And so we come to the second main question, or the second main point, which is a question. When will the kingdom of Antichrist be destroyed? And we'll look at a text in just a a moment here. But why do I ask that question, or why even ask the question? I'm seeking to answer the question. Well, let me first tell you why I don't ask the question, and then let me suggests why I do ask the question. I ask not this question, when will the kingdom of Antichrist be destroyed? Not in order to sell books, not in order to make money, not to become famous, not to become rich. Next, I ask not uh, this question, when will the kingdom of Antichrist be destroyed? In order to satisfy your curiosity or my curiosity. Uh, That is not the purpose of prophecy that we find in scripture, simply to satisfy our curiosity. Dear ones, prophecy points to the greatness of God who decrees all. That's why he can prophesy what's going to come to pass because he's decreed all. That's how he knows what's going to happen. He's decreed all these things to come to pass. And because he's decreed these things to come to pass, he controls all of history. It's not Antichrist that controls history. It's not Satan that controls history. It's God that controls history. Likewise, prophecy confirms that the Bible is God's inspired word. When prophetic events are realized and fulfilled in history, it builds our confidence even more in the trustworthiness of God's word, that it is exactly what it claims to be, the word of God. Moreover, prophecy, dear ones, prepares us for what is to come. 
Prophecy prepares us and it calls us out of our laziness into diligence and vigilance to take heed, to beware. And prophecy gives us hope. Prophecy gives us hope that Jesus reigns now and he will be victorious in the future. Prophecy does all of that. It doesn't simply satisfy our curiosity. That's not why we study prophecy, but for the reasons that I just gave. That's why we study prophecy. Let me also say, I ask not this question as to when the papal kingdom of Antichrist will be destroyed because I know with absolute certainty the year when the papal kingdom of Antichrist will be destroyed. I don't ask the question because I know with absolute certainty. Uh, I don't believe that, that until it actually happens, I think we can, and this is what I hope to be able to show uh, from a study of scripture itself, that we, uh, we can have, again, when we look at the things prophesied and we search for the fulfillment in history, I think that we can say, well, this is a likely date when that 1,260-year period began. Therefore, we can project that that's, this is when that 1,260-year period will end. And this is, a, this is a likely date in light of the facts and what we see in the scripture, when that time began, that period of time began. And so, though I am not going to claim with infallible and absolute certainty the year when the papal kingdom of Antichrist will be destroyed, because I know that the, the year in which it be, uh, that 1,260-year period began... I do believe, however, that asking the question and seeking a biblical answer helps us in learning how to study and apply prophecy. In other words, by asking the question and seeking to understand what God's Word teaches, it helps us to go through the mental process. This is how we are to use prophecy. We don't just throw out dates. We don't simply just come up with uh, uh, events that we think uh, uh, are important in history. We try to find, first of all, as we did with the character of the little horn that becomes the great horn, we tried to identify in the Bible the characteristics of that little horn that became a great horn, first of all. So we went to the scripture, first of all. Then we went to history to say, who manifests, who shows forth these characteristics in history and at the time that's spoken there of. So likewise, in answering this question, that's what we will propose to do, is to look at the scripture and seek to come up with a likely time when that 1,260-year period uh, began. And it, I would simply say, if anyone has a better or a more biblical response or method to locate when the papal kingdom of Antichrist began and when it will be destroyed, I'm ready to be taught. I'm ready to be taught. Well, let me suggest that since the length of this war against the saints is to last 1,260 years, with the end coming at the destruction of the papal kingdom of Rome by the Lord Jesus, and since there must be an event that begins that 1,260-year period, then I submit to you that it's at least possible 
to know when that initial date began. What was the event that started the 1,260-year period? Why did God give that to us if it wasn't even possible for us to know when it began and therefore when it will end? Let me be clear that in asking this question, when will the papal kingdom of Antichrist be destroyed? And when did it, when did it begin? That 1,260 year period. We are not seeking to know the time of Christ's second coming. That's not what we're seeking to do. No man and no angel, Jesus says in Matthew 24, 36, knows the time, the day, or the hour of Christ's second coming. But what we are seeking to understand is the time at which the great horn, that little horn that became the great horn, the papal kingdom of Antichrist will be finally destroyed by King Jesus. And then the glorious millennial reign from heaven of the Lord Jesus over all the earth will begin. Well, I believe, and now we will get into looking at this matter and seeking try to identify to answer the question. I believe a likely date in history to begin the 1,260-year period of oppression is when the papal kingdom of Rome united with the political kingdom of Rome to form an alliance of mutual benefit one to the other so that the papal kingdom of Rome rode upon the back of the civil beast of Rome, which is what is prophesied to occur in Revelation chapter 17, verse 3. So he, that is this interpreting angel, carried me, the Apostle John, away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Two characters that are mentioned there. There is the woman who... It is described later on in Revelation 17 is a harlot, uh, not the true and faithful wife of Jesus Christ, but a harlot wife. One, which means again that whoever this woman represents, it's one that identifies, that professes to be the wife of Christ, but is a harlot. Uh, this is not emperor worship. As, is, as some believe uh, the woman represents. It's not the uh, worship of, of uh, the Caesar or emperor worship. Uh, that I can hardly describe as being a harlot. Uh, a harlot is one, uh, again, who is unfaithful to uh, the one that she claims to be her husband. And that's what we find here in this particular uh, image of this woman that, that rides upon the back of this beast that has seven heads and ten horns. I would submit to you uh, that this woman, as we've mentioned in previous sermons, uh, represents, again, the papal kingdom of Rome, represents a harlot church, represents uh, this, this uh, church that has been unfaithful to Jesus Christ. Um, that's, that is what a, a harlot is. And uh, so, again, uh, the, uh, the second uh, uh, character in this particular prophecy is a beast. Notice, again, this beast has uh, uh, ten horns, very 
much um, to the point of Daniel's beast, the fourth beast, uh, having ten horns uh, there in Daniel 7. Uh, that beast with ten horns uh, represents uh, Rome, the civil uh, political kingdom of Rome uh, with ten horns. Here, likewise, uh, in Revelation, this beast with seven heads and ten horns represents the political uh, uh, kingdom of Rome. And the... Um, this particular expression of the kingdom of Rome is not one that existed at the time of John because later on in John 17, it says that these 10 horns uh, do not yet have their power. At the time that John was writing, they are not yet kingdoms. They are not yet in power. Uh, they don't exist yet as kingdoms, but they will come into power. So again, uh, I would simply submit that the woman referred to here as well, that's riding on the back of this beast and the beast itself doesn't represent something that existed at the time in which John was writing. These are not uh, uh, characters. These are not images of, of entities that, uh, that lived and that existed in the first century, in other words. They were to come afterwards. So the woman doesn't represent, for example, first century Judaism, um, I don't believe. Uh, doesn't represent emperor worship. Um, uh, represents, again, um, as I've noted, here, um, uh, the papal kingdom of Rome. Notice in verse 4, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having to do with the wealth, the riches of this particular unfaithful church. Um, uh, the color, even uh, scarlet and uh, purple, um, uh, think in terms of the, uh, the robes, um, uh, the clothing of, of the, uh, the papal kingdom of Rome. Uh, having a golden cup, um, think of the, the chalice, um, uh, in which is, again, uh, the wine that they claim to uh, uh, be turned into the actual blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, the Lord says here it's, full, it's, a, it's a cup filled with abominations, and it is an abomination. It is worshiping uh, an idol uh, to worship um, uh, uh, that cup and that wine and that bread it is an idol it is idolatry uh, is, uh, that is uh, that is happening and the filthiness of her fornication um, her spirit particularly her spiritual fornication in, in departing from uh, the faithfulness uh, to Jesus Christ but rather usurping um, the claim of Christ to be uh, Christ's uh, who is the alone head of his church and usurping that title for its leader, the Pope. And uh, here in verse 5, it's called the Mystery Babylon, the Great. Uh, and uh, in verse 6, the woman is drunk with the blood of the saints. Again, we've, we've looked at the history of the Roman Catholic Church that has uh, persecuted uh, spilt the blood of so many martyrs uh, for Jesus Christ. And, uh, and then in verse uh, 18, um, And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. Again, uh, what other great city that reigns over the kings of the earth at the time of John would there have been than Rome and in subsequent centuries as well than Rome? This is, again... Um, the church of Rome that has become unfaithful, that rides upon the back of the beast of this civil Roman political beast. <clears throat> and so, when in history uh, can we identify when an event of this nature took place where the, the papal kingdom of Rome very clearly began to ride 
upon the back of the political kingdom of Rome. Well, let me suggest to you that this alliance between the civil kingdom of Rome and the papal kingdom of Rome was in a most notable and conspicuous way made public when Pope Leo III crowned Charlemagne emperor of the revived, restored Roman Empire on December 25th, 800 in Rome. At that time, Charlemagne was officially crowned by Pope Leo III, quote, most serene Augustus, crowned by God, great and pacific, that is peaceful emperor, governing the Roman Empire. You see, this is an extremely uh, important date. Uh, do a search, Google search, uh, and just see how historians all see this particular event as being of such great significance when, again, there was that alliance formed, very clear alliance formed between the papal kingdom of Rome and the and the civil and political kingdom of Rome in 800. But there's one other thing in, in Revelation um, that I want to also mention, uh, a, a second indication that I believe would point to that being a very likely time when to begin the 1,260-year period. And that is Revelation 13, verse 3. Revelation 13, 3. This is uh, John in this vision looking at this beast that comes out of the sea, which again is, a, is the fourth beast of Daniel. It's the Roman beast. But notice what it, we read here. And I saw one of his heads. L let me read verse 1 first. And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And then verse 3. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death literally slain to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wandered after the beast. So this is talking about, again, the political kingdom of Rome and uh, that has the ten horns upon its head, like in Daniel chapter 7, and it has seven heads, and here it speaks of one of the heads being slain to death. But that head that was slain to death coming to life again. Again, we are seeking to understand from this when in history might we see this head that was slain and the head that came to life. And I, again, would suggest to you that at the time of the coronation of Charlemagne in 800 AD, the Western Roman Empire came to an end and the last emperor reigned Romulus Augustus in 476. It came to an end. It was dealt a deathly blow at that time. There was no longer any emperor uh, reigning in Rome. There was no longer any Western Roman Empire uh, at all. Uh, it was basically uh, uh, divided amongst the ten, the ten horns, the ten kingdoms. But in 800 AD, when the Pope crowned Charlemagne, notice he crowned him to be Augustus, emperor of the Roman Empire that he became. He became, at that point, that was the revived, that was the healing 
of the head that was slain. That was the healing, that was the coming to life of the Roman Empire once again under Charlemagne in 800 AD. Again, if, if in history uh, there are better um, projections, better models uh, to follow than what has been suggested here, I'm willing to learn. I've sought to understand all of the, the various views that I can possibly understand out there that are, that are promoted. But I do believe that this is one that, that takes, begins with Scripture and then seeks to find that occurring in history. And I believe this is, uh, again, the, the realization, the best uh, that, that I personally have been able to find as far as the interpretation of these texts. So, as we now begin to try to draw things to a close... In Daniel, I'm sorry, in Revelation 17, 11. Revelation 17, 11, This beast that has the seven heads and ten horns and upon whom the, the um, harlot is riding, we read here a very... Um, puzzling statement and again I think that what I've suggested to you um, fits very well in answering what this means but it says in Revelation 17 11, and the beast that was and is not even he is the eighth which is of the seven and goeth into perdition Okay, let's just break that down very quickly. So this beast, this Roman beast that was, it had life up until 476. And is not. It doesn't have life. It comes to a place where it doesn't have life any longer. And he is even the eighth. He comes to life as the eighth head, which is one of the seven, meaning that this is the revival, the resurrection, as it were, of one of the heads that was previously slain. He's the eighth. And is of the seven. He's one of the seven, the head that was slain. He's the eighth, and goeth into perdition. This is what we find in Daniel. He's destroyed. He goes into perdition. It's what we find at the end of in uh, Revelation chapter 19, that before Christ's millennial reign from heaven over the earth, that the false prophet and the beast will be cast into, into hell. So I submit that, that this symbiotic relationship of the papal kingdom of Rome riding on the back of the political kingdom of a restored Roman Empire, that it was initiated back in 800 AD, 1,260 years beyond 800 AD, brings us to the year 2060 as the possible date when the great horn, the papal kingdom of Rome, will be destroyed by King Jesus and when he will begin at that time to draw all nations to himself through the effectual preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me leave you with some application. First of all, prophetic history. Prophetic history follows the same order as the history of the Lord Jesus. First, the crown, 
I'm sorry, first the cross and then the crown. First, there's tribulation in this life. Presently, in the age in which we live, there's tribulation, there's persecution. But then there is reformation to come. When the Lord Jesus reigns from heaven in such a conspicuous way in drawing the nations to himself. First there are tears, and then there is joy. Therefore, we are not greater than our Lord and Master in the order that he followed, first the cross, then the crown. We're not greater than him as if we can go a different route, a different way than he has gone. For us individually, first it is the cross and then the crown. But even in the midst of the cross, he doesn't leave us. He doesn't forsake us. He's still king. Even when we're bearing his cross, he's still the king. And he gives us little respites. He gives us times of blessing and refreshment to assure us that he is with us. so that we do not lose hope, so that we do not cast aside our profession. But dear ones, there is coming a better time. That's the hope. There is coming a time when Jesus Christ will reign over all the nations, where he will put down his enemies. Where the churches of this world will come together and we'll confess the same faith. We'll confess the same doctrine and worship throughout the world. There's coming a time when the unity for which Jesus prayed in John 17 will come to realization that his church would be one. He, he's prayed for it. It's going to happen. And so right now in the time of tears, We're not in despair. We're not defeated. We are preparing for the time of victory, which is yet to come as God's people throughout the world. And so again, uh, this is, as we study prophecy and as we study Daniel 7, that's what we ought to take away from it. First tears, then joy. First tribulation, then reformation. And even in the midst of the 1260-year period occurs what? The first reformation, first Protestant reformation, the second reformation. And so there are periods, even in the midst of that 1260-year period, in which we see glimpses of the glory of Christ that will be in that Millennial reign of Christ from heaven over all the earth. One last application is this. Though this prophecy tells of a 1260-year period of oppression and persecution by the little horn that became the great horn, that is the papal kingdom of Rome, this prophecy also gives us hope that it will come to an end. And dear ones, we need that hope, don't we? We need that hope not only for the situation that we see ourselves in presently in our nation and the spiraling downward, the tyranny, the quenching of God-given rights, as we see world leaders talking more and more about a one-world government and a one-world religion. As we see, again, um, various things happening by way of that tyranny, it's going to come to an end. That's our hope. And it, uh, God willing, will come to an end while some of you even within the congregation, are still living, if indeed 
2060 is the year I may not be around, but some of you may be around at that time to actual witness and to see God's glorious rule and reign occur. We always need Christ's resurrection hope in this world of suffering, trial, persecution, and affliction. We need to understand, though 1260 years is a long time, it is temporary. And though our suffering here in our life, and we may suffer for weeks and months and years in our health, in some various setbacks that are, very, that are discouraging, that are tormenting in, in various ways, it is temporary. And even in the midst of that, the Lord comes alongside. He doesn't desert us. He doesn't abandon us to remind us he's king. He reigns as king. And you know, a greater demonstration, I believe, than of simply taking us out of those situations, which he could do if he chose to do, is giving us the strength to continue to persevere in faithfulness even through those times of suffering, the time of trial and affliction, that we do not give up, that we do not surrender, though we may feel like doing so. Perseverance, dear ones, and endurance, I submit to you, in the midst of great persecution, fiery trials, Perseverance and endurance is a greater miracle than if he even delivered us out of those situations altogether. Jesus, in John 17, 15, says, I pray not that thou shouldest, he's praying to his father, concerning his, his, his followers, his, those who believe in him, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of this world but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil one while they are in this world, that thou would preserve them, protect them from the evil one, but don't take them out of the world. Don't deliver them out of this place of suffering, but keep them in the midst of that suffering. No matter how dark the day appears, Therefore, do not despair. Do not give up. There is certain hope that what you are enduring, enduring even now is not wasted time. It's not a waste. It is a growing time. It is an overcoming time. It is a humbling time. It is a learning time. It is a sanctifying time. And it demonstrates it demonstrates, dear ones, the fact that you endure and you persevere. It demonstrates that you belong to him. You belong to Jesus Christ. For he is the one who bore the cross long before you began bearing your crosses. He first bore the cross. And so you are following in his steps. Remember, dear ones, the king loves you with an everlasting love and he is with you and he will not abandon you and he will bring you his beloved ones into his everlasting glory nothing is wasted nothing absolutely nothing is in vain when Jesus Christ reigns as king Please stand with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do glorify Thee and praise Thee that our Savior is King, King of kings and Lord of lords. We pray our, our Lord to come unto those 
even now, who are going through great trial, great suffering. Perhaps, Lord, uh, who have even questioned whether they can go any farther, Lord, help them to realize Jesus is king and there is no wasted trial and that thou art using all that comes upon them to show that they truly belong to thee because thou dost give to them endurance and perseverance to not forsake thee, to not forsake the faith and trust in Jesus. Thank thee that thy prayers even now for us confirm that that our faith cannot fail, that it will persevere because none of Christ's prayers have ever failed. We ask, Lord, that thou would encourage us with hope today. Let us not live regardless of what the enemy does. Lord, let us not live in defeat. Let us remember that we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. In Jesus' name. Amen.